Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Like Malcolm, just when I thought this culture was open, they go and doubt him. Fuck Dominic Town, spit ice, skip jewelry, multi cocktails on me like accessories. Uh, welcome to a new episode of Another World is Potable. Um, today we're going to be doing something uh, quite different and something that I'm really excited about, um, which is I'm going to bring back to, uh, I would say, the theories and the public intellectuals that I am most influenced by and that I think are doing some of the most exciting work, um, which is uh, Vanessa Wills and George Mayer. Um, and, and I wanted to bring them on, not only because it's always great to have them on <laughs> um, and to hear their thoughts, but because I thought it would be very interesting to have this as a conversation about the relationship between a world without police and abolitionism, and how important that is, with a discussion about what would, as we think about revolutions and really systemic change, that mean for how we deal with uh, people who um, are elites that are going to cling to power and in many ways are doing things that, you know, I think in a different context are legitimately criminal, such as hoarding wealth and people are starving. Um, and I wanted to bring them both on because I think they will have really interesting things to say individually and to each other. So uh, Gio and Vanessa, thank you both so much for coming on. Yes. Yeah, I'm super happy to be back on. Um, so I wanted to start maybe if it's all right with you, Gio, because you have, uh, well, you have three new books out, uh, which is incredibly impressive. Yes. <laughs> but I wanted to start with, uh, you know, one uh, the one of them, uh, which is a, a very important book that's come out, which is A World Without Police. Um, and this is a fantastic book on, on every level. Um, but I was interested because, you know, there's a certain sense in which you make a very strong argument about why we don't need police and why it's not just about reforming police, but it's actually giving epistemologies and logics that even would make policing necessary or seen as a solution when it's really the problem. Um, but without giving away too much of the plot, so to speak, I know that you've both, you know, I mean, you've been someone who has, you know, been involved with uh, kind of not just radical but revolutionary movements and studied them. And you've seen firsthand uh, the ways in which, I mean, I don't want to put you on, so please tell me if you think I'm wrong, but that, you know, elites don't necessarily like to give up power that easily. Um, so how, when you were writing this and as part of this thing, how did you kind of think about this in terms of creating a revolutionary movement that mm -hmm. moved away from policing as a social principle and social practice with yeah. a recognition that there will still potentially need to be, as history shows, revolutionary forms of justice. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you put your finger right on an essential question. And one of the things that I you know, wanted to do in the book is to 
you know, really insist that abolition is, first of all, a movement um, rather than an ethic or a principle abstractly understood. It's a movement. It's a living movement. It's, it's you know, a dynamic of struggle. Um, that means it's a movement against, you know, uh, of course, that's built right into the name. You know, we're, we're trying to tear down institutions, which means targeting them. Um, you know, uh, counteracting them, weakening them, and trying to replace them. Um, but much, you know, sort of abolitionist literature has come to focus on the replacement, on the alternative, at the expense of, I think, the strategic question of struggle. And so I really wanted to, to center that question, to think about not only what a world without police would look like, um, but also how do we get there? How do we target police power? How do we fight against it? And how do we, uh, you know, how do we build something different? Um, this all raises, I think, as, as you all know, um, very old questions about transition, questions about the, you know, the, the sort of fraught question of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which, again, you know, is just code for, uh, you know, what is it that we do in the meantime as we fight against what are incredibly ferocious enemies? And, and we need to, you know, resist this idealism that, you know, as soon as we kind of withdraw old institutions, you know, that, that the world is already prepared, you know, for, you know, you know, for a revolutionary alternative. We need to be, we need to understand that this is a long struggle and it's going to be a ferocious struggle. And, and how do we carry out that struggle is, is one of the main questions. Mm -hmm. And Vanessa, I want to bring you in here, um, if that's all right. I mean, as someone who's not only, you know, a, a very serious activist and, and also a kind of theorist, uh, radical movements, but you know, uh, um, a distinguished moral philosopher. What do you think these kinds of questions, which are as you know, um, I, I, I think both a living movement of abolitionism and a demand that we actually begin to create not just you know new organizations and institutions, but new frameworks for justice. What do you think this means for how we think about morality, for instance? and particularly how we think about what constitutes moral action. So, for instance, do you think that there is a way in which we have to begin separating, you know, the idea of, you know, morality for the 99% and morality for the 1%? It's interesting. So there's um, one line in the manifesto that I come back to often about the question of morality in uh, Marxist theory. And uh, Marx and Engels write that to affect the kinds of social transformations calling for will require, quote, despotic inroads on property. And I always think that's such an interesting choice of phrase. People don't often ends <laughs> right <laughs> as despotic and so the question is what like that term and they do so you know as they often irony and the irony is that according to the standards of according to standards of liberal morality that place the ability of private property of their moral out, uh, the sorts of changes that the communist movement is after are going to be entirely unjustifiable, right? We are to use those kinds of frames and somehow the service of working class liberal 
emancipation, right? right? They're in fact mm -hmm. ideologically opposed to those things. So then the question is, well, on what basis of changes? You know, of course, we're talking about changes like seizing the means of production, right? Like actually making have the things that they need to survive and more than that to flourish and to um, develop various capacities and interests. And so the question is, you know, is that the sort of thing that even stands in need of any some Marxist theorists say no, right? That what Marx is up to is just abandoning the idea of morality altogether. Um, I think it's a little bit more that, and I think that um, at least in terms of context of remaining society, right? Even the initial um, revolution, the aftermath is still going to and be a class society, it's just going to be one where you have a dictatorship of the proletariat, a dictatorship of the majority. Um, and I think that also speaks to the question of what could justify the proletariat over society in such a case. And the answer is that it is genuine democracy, that it is self-control, that that is the real sort of initial glimmer of what it would be like for human beings not to be alienated from potential to author their lives. Mm, mm. And, and I think that's a, that's a really important point as well, that, that in a sense, you know, when we look at the elimination of policing, what we're really looking at in a certain world is ways in which we don't actually have mass democracy and genuine democracy and genuine existential ability to control either our social relations, our economic relations, or our personal lives. Um, I'm wondering, you know, in, in a certain sense, and, and I'll kind of open this up to, to both of you. I mean, when we talk about this, I mean, one of the aspects is that, you know, to a certain extent, you know, there's a question of violence and, and what the role of violence could or should be in, this, in, in, in these discussions. And policing is in a large part about institutionalizations of violence. And, and then in a lot of the discussions that have been happening now, brutality is saying legitimate versus, you know, illegitimate violence. And I, I am wondering, you know, in, in, in a way, is there a sense in which we can actually talk about moral violence mm -hmm. in a revolutionary thing? Um, and how would we be able to do so as part of this kind of emergent and resurgent living abolitionist tradition? Yeah, I think that's a, that's an amazingly good question. Um, it's, and it's a question that, you know, reveals the absolute poverty of liberal thought, right? Liberalism is incapable of thinking violence, despite the fact that it is built on and relies on violence every day. It has to constantly kind of, um, you know, attempt to hide that violence, banish it from politics, banish it from playing an active role in, you know, in political life. Um, and it also has to sort of simplify um, and homogenize that violence. This is something I talk about in, in my dialectics book, just the fact that you've got, you know, this category called violence and yet, 
you know, the violence of an institution upholding hierarchy and inequality and white supremacy is understood to be categorically the same as the violence of liberation. And I just think those are very different things. They're, they're different categories. And, and we can't try to, uh, you know, understand them under the under the, 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 the category of the same. And one of the questions is, what do they do? What do they accomplish and toward what ends? You know, what sort of self-creation do they facilitate? Um, you know, what kind of liberation are they, are they a part of? You know, and, and you know, so you've got this question of how is it that people, through things that we might call violence, become new kinds of people, build new kinds of societies in more liberatory, more egalitarian ways. That qualitative question is really, you know, the essential one. And, and I think it connects precisely to the, the question of morals and the question of ethics, because trying to build a more egalitarian world is in and of itself an ethical uh, and moral endeavor, right? We're not, that that shouldn't be hard for us to understand, but we're just sort of like straightjacketed by this liberalism that says anything that's outside of the legal order um, is, is wrong. Anything that can be understood as violence is wrong. And that makes things really uh, impossible. And, and precisely what I think Vanessa was describing, I, you know, you see it in, in Venezuela and you see it in, in many other places where there's an attempt to transform the institutional order which is always a question of violating the norms of legality, right? In Venezuela, you have a liberal democratic state, a traditional state, and yet you also have a communal state. You have communes, you have grassroots democracy, and the two don't fit together, right? One is technically illegal, and this is what the Venezuelan opposition would always say. They would say, what you're doing is illegal, and then, you know, movement, you know, organizers would say, yeah, but what we're doing is justified, right? And these are just very different ways of justifying, you know, political organizing and political work that I think are ultimately incommensurable. The same question arises when it comes to, you know, constituent, and it comes really to a head in this question of like constituent reform, right? When you call together a constituent assembly to rewrite a constitution, you're giving that assembly, by definition, the ability to wipe away the existing and to create the new. And that's how constituent assemblies always work. That's how the U.S. Constitution was established, right? Out of, out of nothing, out of thin air. And yet we try to erase and conceal the fact that that is within the capacity of human beings to recreate and rewrite those institutions. It's always a, an illegal, extra-legal um, gesture. Um, and it's very often a gesture that's understood as or accompanied by what we would call violence. Mm. Mm. And Vanessa, did you want to come in on that as well? I, I, you know, I agree with all that just... I'm, I'm put in mind of Biden's to the uh, protests of the um, end of, of uh, the spring um, of 2020, um, and his comment said numerous times that there's no excuse for violence, and I'm amazed. <laughs> Interesting. This is a very novel position from one of the architects of state violence. And it's curious, so like even when we talk about violence, you know, as a, so I, agree, I totally, I agree with Gio, this kind of, sometimes it's an equivocation, violence, um, uh, oppressive violence and liberatory treated as though they're just the same. Sometimes uh, as though the latter 
And oftentimes there's this sleight of hand about what kinds of things even get um, police arrests usually described as violence, right? Mm. In the media. Um, but breaking a window will absolutely be. Um, and so it's a, it's a cat that has this of words to get into like some philosophy of language. <laughs> We're philosophers. So, but like, um, I say murder, right? It comes, moral valence comes with it, right? In a way that with killing, it doesn't. And violence is like this, right? To, violence is a kind of violation, right? It's an encroachment of the privacy sphere and the privacy of another. So it's so like the term itself is completely premised on this notion of, of, of the private realm and what is viable, uh, right? And then there's the question of autonomy, whose person um, is considered in morally inviolable and who is considered a perfectly subject of this kind of application of force. And so talk about when we talk about violence, I think it's um you know these are some about, right, you know, whose whose use of force even counts as a violation and who is just of this kind of encroachment. Yes. I mean, and, and I think both of those insights are really, really strong. I mean, you know, in, in a sense that, you know, there's always an extra legality and not just an extra legality to say, well, something's legal and then here's something, but actually as a process of creation and newness, right? Because mm -hmm. you're reinstituting, resituating what justice can and should be. But then it's also a reframing and refocusing of who is the subject of violence and who isn't, right? Um, but then I, I think if, if we were, I, I mean, if in a sense, and, and this is kind of a softball straw person question, right? Uh, but but you have to excuse me for, because I think our listeners, got our listeners now, people who may listen to this podcast will be interested in the sense that how do we understand the fact that there are always revolutionary points of violence that are necessary because we this is a a violent thing and, and and with the understanding that you know actual revolutionary movements have the tendency or, or the ability to deform very quickly into you know quite substantial police states and i think one of the things i want to do with this part of the conversation is you know i i think that there can be a danger in the sense that I don't want to just repeat a kind of apologies for the gulags, right? But begin to explore what is it that abolitionism offers us, and particularly the kind of revolution abolitionism that we're, I think we're all equally engaged in, um, that allows us to understand why that occurred and understand how we would still have to engage in these kind of revolutionary forms of justice, extra legal, but from a perspective that wouldn't lead us towards 
some of the policing logics and knowledge and institutions that have affected other movements or other points in history. Yeah, no, again, this is connected to the to the previous question, right? CLR James very rightly says when he's, you know, analyzing the sort of joint revolutions in Haiti and France um, and really grappling with the question of terror, um, he again does something which is absolutely Ill illegible through a liberal lens, which he says, listen, there was a good terror and there was a bad terror. He's like, the good terror was when the violence was directed upward against the enemies of the people. And the bad terror was when that, you know, boomeranged back onto, uh, you know, onto the grassroots, when the leadership became alienated from the masses and, you know, and threatened by them. And then, you know, ultimately sealed its own doom by attacking its own base. Right. And so at the, at the same time, he's. Uh, recognizing the possibility of these two, the connectedness possibly of the two, but, at the, but, but he's distinguishing them, right, in a, in a way that we need to do. Um, and, and, you know, and, and again, this does get to the question of what do we do in a context where we are fighting a, a legitimate struggle, but, but our enemies are, are, are violent, are ferocious, will not give up easily. This is why Fanon says that decolonization is necessarily violent, not necessarily because, um, you know, because we want to build a world of more violence, but because our enemies are not giving up, first of all, and because the subjective transformation, you know, necessary for a world of freedom requires that people struggle, right? So both of those pieces are, are absolutely um, uh, essential to thinking through, uh, you know, these these questions, and so I think you know it is a crucial question for us because we do know how these logics are recreated. Again, you know, the question of the dictatorship or the proletariat, and a very much, you know, I'm, you know, uh, you know, a, a Leninist of state and revolution, right? Which is, you know, to say that we are on the one hand fighting against those who would simply use the state and use its violence you know, as is, um, and we're also fighting against those who would refuse to do so, right? In other, and I think that's a question of refusing to, to engage in the actual struggle necessary to win. Um, this violence can and must wither away, um, you know, and, and, and does so, um, again, in, in terms that directly parallel what we understand about abolitionism as a movement today. What does that mean? Insofar as the police are obsolete, we don't need police, right? And so what Lenin was saying was insofar as um, the state is obsolete, it will cease to exist. But that requires the transformation of society. That requires the elimination and abolition of the inequalities that structure our society. We will have police as long as there is class, race, gender. You know, there will be someone there. You know, guarding, patrolling those boundaries and those divisions, um, and so this this process of withering away could be an incredibly long one, and we need to be on alert as to what that looks like and how these you know you know these uh, new revolutionary uh, states can harden, right? And there are aspects of this happening uh, in Venezuela. Um, it's you know, and, and of course it happens elsewhere. That's not to say that the struggle is lost, but we need to be very attentive to the ways that, as Vanessa said, the question is one of democracy. The question is one of the exertion of force from below directly um, through community struggles, through organic relationships versus a professional force sitting above society, as Lenin puts it, exerting that force downward. Mm -hmm. and in, in, in that sense, like Vanessa, I mean, would you also 
kind of be able to begin thinking about how this would lead to new philosophical understandings, uh, you know, or new new perspectives for, or I don't want to say new, but a, a different type of moral philosophy that did take into account terror as something potentially legitimate, good terror versus bad terror. And also, you know, as I, I think you said, that allows us to be on, on the one hand, um, looking at morality as something that is very historically or transitory based on where it is in a revolutionary moment. And at the same time, allows us to make broader moral claims about what is or is not, you know, moral about certain types of violence and terror. I'm thinking. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so where my mind goes is... Um, you, you, you often see debates about whether it is abolitionist demand that police be prosecuted and jailed. And the argument for thinking that it's not relatively straightforward, which is that we don't like jails, right? Um, and are what we're trying to abolish and so isn't there something critical about um, uh, when police are uh, charged and prosecuted and they're almost never convicted if they are you know maybe plotting that um, I, I think that between here and a lot of cops are going to jail. Um, let's and, let's hope so. Yeah, right? Like, they should, right? And and so, I, you know, I think the question of a a dialectical a word that I'll unpack, you know, a dialectical um, of how change, right? Um, so one, so there's a book by. Um, uh, blanking on the name that the ethical con. I'm blanking on the name. It's a book by Kautsky. It's a book the ethical conception of history. Um, we'll be able to Google and find it. Um, and um, I mean, there's a lot that's sort of um with um with this book, but it includes this critique of content. He's intervening in a debate with Edward Bernstein, who um, doesn't have because it's supposedly just a theory of strict economic determinism. But uh, we could borrow moral theory, right? This kind of hybrid. Um, Kalski explains, I think, really elegantly why that is, and it's not the case because um, liberal moral theory, Kant's, um, put forward a, you know, usually not bad, you know, like yeah, it would be great if we all, uh, you know, never merely as in always, you know, as an end. Um, yeah, or after probably is one. Exactly that. Um, but then the advice to act today 
as though that future world is actually advice virtually guarantee realize that imagined world if they you know treat a killer as though oh no i can't put you in jail because that's just treating you as a means right i'm not concerned about your individual development and flourishing i mean that's a that would be a mistake you know which is i'm not saying this is I am saying this is sort of bad moral reasoning that region, right? Um, question. And so we have to concretely about what is actually in order to realize the kind of uh, eth you know, ethical vision of a better world that we share. Um, that we often share in common liberals, right? And the distinction almost always um, of method. One of the things that distinguishes Marx's uh, engagements with ethical reason that he's always asking quotes is not just some sort of abstract question. Um, what we need to be how do we actually create um, the kind of going to uh, encapsulate and instantiate the value uh, to see instantiated? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, th that's such a great way to describe what we confront. And I think this question of, you know, what, what is increasingly, I think, you know, the phrase keeps coming up and I say that, you know, as though I were not also saying it, you know, it's not just like it's coming up, um, but the phrase dialectical abolitionism, right? Like, what does it mean to move toward the world of abolition, right? Versus posing it, you know, and again, for me, this stands against something like an abolitionist ethic understood abstractly or understood as a pure ethic. Um, and these are old questions in political thought and philosophy, you know, of course, you know, Max Weber, you know, all these classical political thinkers are grappling with these questions in a non, you know, in a, a non-revolutionary context, but the question is often the same. But concretely speaking, this is, you know, you know, exactly what Vanessa was just describing is something that racks the movement, you know, for abolition, right? And, and something that needs to be discussed and dealt with, and we need to have a better and a clearer position on. And this came up precisely around the question of cops. You know, it continues to come up every time a cop is put on trial. Um, but, you know, the, the organizations that I was a part of, we were grappling with it back when Oscar Grant uh, was killed by Johannes Messerly. And when the movements in the streets, fierce movements, movements that through a series of rebellions over three um, different days in the course of a month forced the arrest of Johannes Messerly, forced him to be put on trial and charged, you know, uh, resisted and rejected him being released on bail, um, and then continued to resist and keep that pressure up in the streets. And, and in so doing, showed their power and built, you know, built a movement. But there were abolitionists in that moment who said, we don't want to send a cop to jail. And when Vanessa says, you know, that certain positions make it virtually impossible for you to move toward the world you want. That was one of those positions. Why? Because, again, abolition is a mass movement or it is nothing at all. And the mass movement was demanding this, you know, this specific concrete thing as an expression and an index of its own power. Um, people are not stupid, right? Because part of the, 
I mean, part of the argument, I think, of some abolitionists is is actually not an ethical one. It's a strategic one. It says, like, if people are tricked into thinking that individual solutions are enough, then they won't grasp the broader abolition. But, I mean, who who really thinks that Derek Chauvin going to jail fixed the problem? I think very few people do. I think very few people understand that to be justice. And yet we have this recurring idea that we can treat these things as an ethic. Again, this gets back to bad bad theory and bad philosophy in a lot of ways um, because just the same with violence right you know you can't it's this sort of abstract inflation that says person going to jail equals person going to jail right that's a pure abstraction right young black man going to jail due to white supremacy of a system is not the same as white cop going to jail for murder Right, like these are literally almost opposites, and yet we have this, uh, you know, this tendency to conflate things as if they were actually categories of the same uh, when they are not. And what we what we wrote and what we published back in two thousand nine in that context said, listen, the more cops go to jail, the closer we are to abolition. Um, and, and you know, that's not a mechanical. Again, you know, if people are, you know, if it undermines the movement, that's a strategic question. If it strength, strengthens the movement, that's a strategic question too. But jails were quite simply not made for police. And I think we need to understand that piece as well. Yeah, I mean, I, and, I, and I think that there's an interesting part here about that, which is, as you said, there's a paradox of abolitionism as a revolutionary principle and movement, which is, as Vanessa, you said, and as uh, uh, Gio, you, you've kind of been over with a specific example, is that oftentimes you have to do non abolitionist things, quote unquote, in order to achieve abolitionism as a material reality. And I think there's a liberalization of abolitionism when you do just make it a moral principle that you can nicely talk about in the classroom, right? Um, and I mean, I think though, one of the points that I would wanna explore, maybe it's just some of the points that I'm interested in. So. I don't know how relevant they are. So if they are self-serving, I apologize. So I think we can underestimate how much of an effective appeal, not just policing has, but policing as a part and parcel relationship to desires for control. And, and I think about like, you know, we mentioned Lenin earlier to this point. And certainly I don't think that Lenin would necessarily classify himself as a you know someone into scientific management or, or a terrorist right however i mean though though within his work you, you can see that there's very clear kind of ideas of taking taylor seriously as a transitionary part right and yet you can still feel i mean at least in the reading a, a real desire like gosh you know wouldn't it just be so amazing to be able to to to, to control labor you know, to make it scientific, to, to make it. And, and really, what is scientific management but policing at an organizational level of uh, the economic, right? Um, and, and I bring that up because how do we take seriously policing as a not just kind of like, and, and I think you put this perfectly, George, no one thinks that, I mean, very few people think that sending juvenile, um, you know, quote unquote offenders to prison is solving any problem, right? But I would say that, you know, one of the efforts is, is, is to get rid of this sense of, you know, that we can just quote unquote clean up our streets, right? That we can somehow use policing, whether it's in the economic or political level, 
to solve our problems, right? Like, how do we get rid of that at a level, not just rationality, but really, if I can, kind of psychic enjoyment, right? I think there's a real sense of security that comes with that, a real sense of even when we know it doesn't make sense, it makes it gives us it makes sense to us on an emotional level. And I'm wondering how we move beyond that. Because I think that it's very real. And I think it's it, you know, I, I think the, the the work that you've done, uh, George, and that you've also done as a one of the great things about this is that the police are a symptom. And they're not just a symptom of state violence. They're a symptom of a whole epistemology of, you know liberalism and, and bourgeois power, right? So how do we how do we begin to take seriously the fact that strategically we may have to engage in this type of action? Well, at the same time, really also strategically moving beyond it as a, as a form of psychic investment and, you know, enjoyment. Well, I would, um, if I could just jump in, let's say, and I, you know, I know we shouldn't put too much weight on this, but 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 Pete Elam uh, described it as doing not things to achieve abolitionist ends, and I even concede that there's anything non-abolitionist about jailing cops. Um, so Geo Geo said that the jails are cops, which is absolutely true, and so means that um imp- you know you that to the extent that mass move and exercise the kind of pressure that forces the state to at least for this token of show justice that they yeah. do usually uh they slap the hand killer cop um that is that the prisons the prisons are not meant for that purpose they're meant as an extension of police power so i would i would just that out there no to be honest i don't think i think you're absolutely right uh that wasn't semantics and it's good that uh you called because i I think you're absolutely right about that vanessa and and, yeah yeah. i didn't i didn't think you'd disagree yeah but yeah um to to your main question um maybe i don't know and I'm like maybe I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because I don't. I think that there's. I don't know. Like, I, I think there's this question. Like, it's completely legit people to derive pleasure from observing just been right, and so I think then. But then there's also like a question of like tragedy. You know, like I don't know. There's, I think, what we want is like between satisfaction, seeing justice be done, clarity about what justice does actually require, which is what we're conversation, Um, and then also, um, uh, you know, combining that, I think. Tragedy that we live in a world that requires of us that we um, 
relate to other human beings, which is something that capitalism has produced for us. I mean, and part of what I think is part of what I describe as sort of the, as the sort of ethical in Marxism is a, a a movement that aims to realize a world and recognize ourselves in, in the other, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the abolition of alienation, right? Is that we just recognize ourselves as members of a single species of flourishing that are common to us all. And so I think balance of action in a you know a police officer who murdered you know going to jail um but also having a, a, some sort of appreciation of a world you know the, the where that police officer part of the harm created the circumstance where we have to relate to him as our enemy because he is another human being that's part of the crime um, that is so what we're after is a world where we no longer placed in situations where we're looking across the table and and seeing our enemy yeah and i think you know just to add the only thing i would add is that i appreciate the fact that you 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 know pete you underline the the psychic question right and, and the psychic investment in, in policing. And I think it's important to always understand it, as you put it, as a symptom, right? Um, in the sense that, you know, if we're talking about like, you know, you know, Foucault and Deleuze and others and like kill the cop in your head and all these things, yes. At the same time, we have to understand, and this is where Fanon is always so useful, that these psychic phenomena are reflections of social phenomena and social structures. Um, they're not universal. They're not built in and hardwired into our, you know, into our psyches. Um, they are the, you know, results of what Fanon calls a sociogenic um, impulse. Um, and insofar as they are the result of society, they can be transformed. Um, they can be produced in a different way. We become different people as we transform society. And so, and I say that in part to say that, that you know, to push back on the kind of pessimism that says, you know, we may get rid of the cops, but we're, we all deep down, deep down want to be cops. This is a very Freudian, you know, kind of uh, a view. And part of what Fanon said correctly in his pushback on Freud is that there's no reason to assume that that's universal, right? Abstracting from your empirical observation of certain people under certain conditions shows that, but it doesn't show us, you know, the universal structure of what is possible in the human mind. We don't need to derive pleasure from being police, you know, and uh, although I agree that we do derive pleasure from from justice, you know, as well. Um, we, don't we don't have to derive pleasure, you know, from sort of the, you know, the sadistic impulse to hold others down or oppress others or level them with ourselves, um, as Freud would understand it. Mm -hmm. One one of the points around that, and, and I think that you think that you know both of you again really you know it's just that, that, that there's a there's a kind of pleasure that we can get from justice, but it's also a resituating of what justice can constitute. And and I think that as, you know the, the point you made about the feeling of kind of ethical alienation that I, I would say capitalism and, and you know inscribes on us. 
and demands of us, right? Um, is real and serious. And, and I also think, George, you know, the, the, the point as well about that, you know, that the the kind of that the psychic investments that we have, right, is always based on a traumatic relationship with social conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, some of which, you know, we have to be very serious. People, some groups and people are forced to have have more than others. And, and then, question I have, which is, I think, you know, really wonderfully, you put this notion, and, and I think it's in your uh, book as well, implicitly just throughout that, you know, you know, that abolitionism is a living movement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something I think about a lot, and I know that others who are engaged think about it, and it's something that we don't talk about enough, which is, to what extent can those outside a particular context, but who still are committed to these movements, actually talk about what constitutes really serious, you know, revolutionary justice, and really seriously engage with discussions that are happening on the ground about, you know, whether this is a strategic abolitionist move or not. And I bring that up because I think on the one hand, it's very easy to disassociate and say, well, you know, you should just support anything that's happening in terms of trying to present, to 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 to, to promote these movements, right? And that, that, you know, if you're not there, you can't really, you know, if you're not on the front lines, you can't really speak to that, right? But on the other hand, we are trying to build something that is both local and internationalist. And there are serious questions about what do we learn from context? What do we learn from each other? What can we actually share with each other? And that, you know, if in a sense, abolitionism is a living movement, so is abolitionist morality a living thing, right? I wonder about that a lot because I do think that, you know, in a certain part, uh, you know, if the left has in the past at points, uh, you know, had uh, issues of like, wanting to apologize for things that they should be on the front lines of denouncing um, and denouncing in a way that is actually part of a revolutionary strategy as opposed to, you know, just giving into, you know, kind of liberal uh, apologism or um, I think one of the things now is not knowing how and when we can speak to each other and as part and parcel to movements of shared struggle that are often happening in different places. So I'm kind of wondering about that, like, how do we, how do we speak to each other about this, particularly now that we also have real-time communication that allows us to know what's going on in a very interpretive way, obviously, right? So, I mean, what, you know, I, I know, for instance, George, you're very involved in uh, both what's happening in Philadelphia, but also in Venezuela, like, to what extent do we share these types of knowledges? Can people in Philadelphia speak to someone about, you know, in Chile, for instance, uh, what's going on, right? And, and say, this is what we're learning. Or do we just have to support any and all that's happening from the ground? I, I mean, that's a great, complicated <laughs> question. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the things that I try to do in the book is, you know, firstly to insist on policing as a global phenomenon and to show the sort of the concrete dynamics of that, the concrete connections and histories um, but also to, you know, insist that abolition too uh, is global, the struggle can be global. Um, that requires, I think, methodologically some, you know, some 
some some maneuvering, right? <laughs> the police do not operate in exactly the same way in every location on earth or things that are called the police, right? Um, the police in Venezuela are, you know, very different from the NYPD. At the same time, there is some kind of core, you know, there, um, which I need, we need to understand. And that's part, partly a way of saying that, um, you know, while we understand, for example, you know, the difference between sort of, you know, third world states and their third world apparatuses, especially in a revolutionary context, we don't escape the broad dynamic of policing 100%. It's not true as the sort of ultra tanky line would have it that like police in Venezuela, China, North Korea are liberators, right? It's also not true that they're the white supremacist, you know, guardians, you know, that we see, you know, played out so perfectly on the streets of the United States. Um, and we need to understand that complexity in a way that allows us to unify our struggles, right? That allows us to think about the fact that this is what I noticed early on living in Oakland, going back and forth to Caracas and, and working with movements there is that at the very least on the positive level, um, in other words, the pro-positive level of like, you know, what we're fighting for, people were fighting for the same things, right? Community control, self-determination, um, organic, you know, uh, organic community power. Um, and these are, these are common struggles. These are languages through which we can have common conversations. Um, yeah, and, you know, very often, if not most places on earth, the police stand against this, um, things that are called the police stand against this and are, you know, exist to uphold power, privilege, whiteness, and wealth. Um, and we can develop unified struggles. But I think your question also points toward, you know, what is a, a, just a, a really, you know, like, I feel like we're not even on the level of getting to that question because we are surrounded by theories and approaches that that try to cut off these struggles, right? You know, rooted in American particularism, rooted in, you know, specific histories that refuse any connection, you know, between, you know, sort of global struggles, internationalist struggles. We're, we're going through a period that has sought to destroy internationalism, even from within, right? Um, you know, through sort of Afro-pessimist approaches and others. Um, and, and, you know, what we need to do on a very basic level is to say, you know what, we can build these struggles, you know, and it's happening everywhere. It's happening from Ferguson to Palestine to Standing Rock. And these are, you know, you know, these are very, you know, uh, you know, powerful resonances that we can build upon and we need to keep doing so. But we do confront ultimately that question that you raise of, of what kind of translation is required between those spaces. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Vanessa, as someone who has written also about kind of the, you know, the, the radical dangers or critiques of intersectionalism, but also its potentialities uh, possibly. I mean, how do we create, as you said, like global struggles that are also very understanding to particularities in your view? I think it, um themes that Gio's answer just, I think it's the sort of thing that absolutely depends on connections among grassroots movements, right? And we we see that with um, solidarity among um, uh, uh, this for freedom of Palestinians and um, activists for the freedom of black states. Um, you know, we've seen in uh, similar kinds of interconnections among people in their local circumstances reaching out to others 
also uh, fighting similar battles where they are. And so I, I think that theory has to follow work in that sense, right? Um, we want to be doing the work of kind of thing I do, which is thinking about these things as sort of as sometimes abstract, right, and how they relate to one another. Um, a lot of the work on relationships between identity-based oppressions and class-based is, at the end of the day, um, premised on some sort of deeper thoughts about the, the abstract relationship between matters, right? You know, so I, you know, I do, I think we got to do that kind of thing, but ultimately that kind of is best done um, when it following, when it is um, um, influenced by um, practical um, interconnections among struggles that are doing work and, and seeing that sharing um, advice. Um, encouragement, uh, sharing across different struggles is an absolute precondition to stay encouraged to creating those organic links. Mm, mm, mm. And, and, and that point about the kind of organic is, is really key in that sense as well, because I, I think it is a matter of different forms of revolutionary knowledge networks and relationships and bonds. Um, and, and it is something that I, I think that is one that I, I, I've been thinking about quite a bit in terms of this, you know, is that abolitionism on the one hand can be something that is a kind of defining principle of a movement. And on the other hand, it can be a kind of key ethos of critique for, you know, uh, a movement, and I said that because, in in a certain sense, if you look at something like Palestine, and I, and again, I, I don't want to put words in people who's you know in that struggle, that is part of a, of, of an anti-colonial kind of you know liberatory nationalist movement for radical change that takes very seriously state policing as fundamental to their oppression, right? Whereas I think what we're seeing around a lot of work that's happening around quote unquote defund the police, et cetera, is much more very explicit about, you know, a world without police. And I'm wondering to what extent, like how we sometimes think about the status of justice and violence, given that, you know, as I, 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 I like how you said methodological maneuvering, uh, Gio, um, but that, you know, as a living movement, it kind of manifests itself in different ways depending on the context, right? Um, and, and while it may have similar abiding principles, we, we can't we can't tell people, for instance, who are legitimately being colonized not to engage in you know anti-colonial struggles because we may have ideological issues with nationalism, right? So it's a question also for me of thinking about how do we negotiate these oftentimes very profound differences and create as represent like really organic solidarity. Mm -hmm. Dead silence, because that's an incredibly difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that. I mean, it's an essential question. Again, we need to be building them. We need to open. I mean, again, as, as people operating, you know, you know, and I say for Vanessa and I in the US, I think part of the task is like, we need to make sure that our movements are open to that from the very beginning, right? Um, because I think one of the challenges we come up against today is that people are trying to close off those venues for solidarity. Um, then you have the question of translation and and you know and, and comprehension and the comprehension of that relationship which again between here in venezuela is very complicated because it's like uh, you know again it was like we're walking this line um between kind of you know uh tanky mls on the one hand and liberals on the other um where you know it's we are capable of engaging in some level of judgment about what's going on in you know in uh, venezuela we are obligated to judge right we, we can't simply say no what i do is anti-imperial therefore you know you know we leave that to you know to them on the ground because we do need to engage directly with people and we're always choosing who we engage with if we take a pure a purely anti-imperialist line for example um you are tacitly saying the state gets to choose what you know how you know how the revolution plays out right um you, you know and you're so ex you're explicitly saying that other sectors other revolutionary grassroots sectors maybe are not you know uh, you know you're not going to uphold their desire to to play a steering role in that process so it's not it's not as easy as opting out of that right we need to engage in some level of judgment we need to build those relationships directly as much as possible we also at the same time need to be humble about the fact that we are literally not the ones making that process right um, and and that our movements can be in relation with those movements and maybe even at some point be understood as the same movement but that doesn't change the fact that people on the ground are struggling and, and making decisions in contexts that are not the context that we're operating in so i think for me for example that means often thinking hard about you know you know not simply denouncing a decision made by either the venezuelan government or movements or this to prioritize this over that and not saying well this is a terrible decision because what is it that they're engaging with what is this what are the stakes what is the you know what is the balance sheet that they're looking at um and what kind of strategies uh, you know are are playing out you know either publicly or behind closed doors these are super complicated questions but they're questions that we need to be open to you know to asking but again what we do i think often what we should do is to engage movements push debates you know radicalize the the fissures in the in the in the cracks in you know in the u.s um and understand the way that they connect with uh, with broader struggles mm, absolutely and, and i mean do you, do you feel kind of the same Vanessa, or would you have things that you also feel like could I, yeah i mean i think it is a hard question um I, yeah, I think I do. I mean, yeah, I, I echo what you just said. I have to admit, I feel like I've, um, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that I have on the question. <laughs> and so, so we're, so the thought is, you know, what do we, what do we need to do to help to actually encourage the kinds of links that we think are necessary? way of distilling it yeah uh, absolutely you know and recognizing that you know each of them come with their own uh, I, I think can, can you know context specific uh uh factors and scenarios yeah yeah i would i would absolutely echo the um the the observation you made um you know i think i mean one one experience very much a, a pre-pandemic. I was teaching in 
Munich for four months uh, and um, one of the things I was doing was teaching a um, race class and gender and uh, and and largely influenced by um, for of race and um, race theory and I'm in a U.S. And so, um, but I think only this was from the U.S., right? Most of them, of course, were from Germany. Uh, many were from uh, out um, Italy, um, China, and Japan. Um, it was a, because it was a class at a German university, it attracted it particularly attracted a very international um, students who, who were glad to have an English language class. And it was um, a experience because, of course, um, you know, I, I was very um, plain uh, about the fact that um, my, you know, most of my training is in um, most of my life experience is in the U.S. And most of my familiarity work on these questions is done by people writing about the U.S. context. And so it was an in that way, I was like, well, I wonder, you know, like how useful, or, or I should say, in what way you uh, will these students find these materials useful? Um, and I was I was a bit concerned about oh like is this gonna be sort of like American chauvinism here, you know, like is this gonna be someone um, else's time or something? And um said, I mean it was really um amazing uh to have students to me and say um or describe how much they were able to things that Angela Davis writing about the situation of black women states and to see the links and similarities and uh, productive differences in that and how race functions in, in other in other places. So you know I mean that's of course within the context of academia but the, the point is that I think the more that we can foster those kinds of conversations, the better. Um, I, you know, my work with Specter has helped me get into more of those conversations working around the world on different um, liberatory and revolutionary projects, and it's all uh, extremely fascinating and productive. So, um, I, you know, I a lot, you know, there's we can be sort of like materially um, supportive of one another's struggles, but also making time to talk to one another and listen. No, I, I, and I think that's important because certainly I think all of us have, you know, had these inspiring moments as teachers where we know that we've created space of real radical exchange and learning, right? Um, and I guess, you know, going from the broader to the particular on that, I mean, I have a question is because both of you have spoken about, you know, that you are in the U.S. context now. And I think it's one that a lot of people internationally um, would be interested in. Um, and, and I think it's also because it's something that speaks to broader global struggles and issues. Um, 
which is how should we think about the kinds of emergent ethno-nationalist, populist, white supremacist violence that is happening from the far right right now. And I, and I bring that up because there is some that have kind of completely disavowed and said, you know, this, this is just kind of like astroturfing and it doesn't represent anything more than, you know, the kind of weaponization of the, the most regressive forms of white privilege coming and, and, you know, histories of systemic violence and racism, you know. Um, well, others, I, I, I think, have said this is totally, totally nothing to do with anything leftism, and certainly we should be engaging in uh, anti-fascist violence. Um, but, you know, kind of the final question is, like, does this actually, though, speak to the fact that, you know, if you don't allow for serious, serious kinds of justice in an unjust system and these types of things that this is the kind of things that emerge and, it, and it's up to the left to actually direct it in, in ways that are serious and, and that are for progress and not for you know uh bad terror as opposed to good terror yeah wow <laughs> again you know we're, we're you know we're just we're you know we're struggling with with difficult questions we're struggling with you know the these really fraught complexities we we also struggle i think with the question of how to square open and i always bring this up open white supremacy with structural white supremacy right and you know i've always found this to be you know, kind of, especially in different periods, to be a sort of trade trade-off in movement organizing, right? Like the sort of not always, but predominantly like white, you know, anti-fascist street scene um, versus you know the the slower work of sort of like prison and you know abolition type work, um, you know, in in, in other contexts. Um, and we've been thrust, I think, now into a context where we you know and and particularly embodied by someone as like trump uh, where we realize that these are uh, and it becomes increasingly undeniable that these are actually the same right that you know it's not separate struggles even if separate strategies might might apply um but that between the white supremacy of the you know of the of the state and of policing and of prisons and the white supremacy of white nationalists in the streets the, the gap is really really narrow at this moment um the difficulty, of course, is that we also are, you know, are in a moment, you know, again, we're so we're back under Democrats. We've got Joe Biden. And what, you know, what that means is that the gap is going to once again widen. Right. In other words, the state is going to try to distance itself from the most overt forms of white supremacy while explicitly upholding the more sort of structural long term, you know, established white supremacy that has, you know, you know, provide the foundation for for the operation of the country. And so, again, navigating that space is, is a complicated one. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Vanessa, did you want to come on, on this as well? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a of underestimating the the far right and the strength of its position at this moment. Um, President, people were uh, more aware of this, I think, but yeah, that the that the danger has sort of passed. Seductive, but. Um, 
dangerous. Um, again, if we look internationally, if we look outside the United States and we look, um, you know, um, for example, Victor Orban, right, you know, who is, who like lots of folks on the far right connecting with, you know, but if we look at developing um, uh, we were talking about Germany, look at the things like the um, um, uh, alternative to Germany, the AfD, the very far right party over there. Um, it's just clear that we're not out of the woods by any stretch of imagination. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it absolutely remains central that we be thinking uh, here in the U.S. about uh, how to uh, how to challenge have a kind of special obligation. Uh, well, I don't know the right word, but anyway, we have a sort of special opportunity in any case um, to have a kind of impact on the development right internationally because provides so much inspiration and comfort for other movements. Absolutely. But, and so um, that means that fighting them here uh, contributes in a really um, uh, sort of amplified way to the forces internationally. Mm, mm, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think, you know, in, in a certain sense, you know, this is a good place to, to I don't want to say end the discussion, but end, end, end this episode in the, in, in the ways in which abolitionism has to be a living movement that is both, you know, timeless in the fact that it constantly will push us onwards, but extremely urgent, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we have to be thinking strategically at all points, how are we seeking to abolish class, capital, fascism, you know, all the things that requires policing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I want to thank both of you because uh, I always, I love, you know, whenever I get a chance to speak to either of you, I, I'm always very happy afterwards. Aww, likewise, <laughs> it's very mutual. And thank you because in the pre-conversation, this is a Geo and I have never been, our voices have not been heard by one another simultaneously before. So this is yes. a great yeah. yeah, and it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for bringing it together, and, and thanks to Vanessa for you know for participating. Uh, well, thank you both, and I'm glad I was able to connect you in, in a new way. Uh, so, you know, like I always say, another world is not only possible, it's possible, and both of you are huge, huge parts of it. So thank you both, and I'm looking forward to, you know, continuing to struggle with you and, you know, to speak to both of you again soon. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> Al calor de una cerveza voy bebiendo mi ciudad Al compás de la noche observando a mi gente La pobreza de la raza, mucha prostitución Drogas y extorsión por las calles Niños sucios, hambrientos Queriendo saltar hasta llegar el momento Ese momento, el que nunca llegará Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, another world is not only possible, but happening right now. <laughs>